reading from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came he called his disciples and chose twelve of them whom he also named apostles. Simon whom he named Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called the Zealot and Judas son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So back to my thoughts about Sabbath keeping. And if I'm honest, arguments about Sabbath keeping haven't really been particularly significant in my personal understanding of Christian discipleship. When I was 13, I started working on Sundays, uh, initially doing a daily paper round and then graduating to working in the paper shop. I would start at five in the morning. I would leave just in time to make it to school or on a Saturday, I would start at five in the morning and work through till 11. And on a Sunday, I would start at five in the morning and leave just in time to make it to church for the band practice before the morning service. And of course, as a minister, which is uh, what I've been doing for more than 20 years now, working on Sundays comes with the territory, as indeed it does for many other professions from people who work in healthcare, to the police, to farming, to retail, and so I could go on. And I well remember the Keep Sunday special campaign of the late 1980s, as various Christian groups got very hot under the collar about the proposals to allow shops to open on Sundays. But most of the Christians I knew were just glad that they could now pop into the supermarket on their way home from church to pick up a few essentials. I did have some contact at around this time with the strict Baptists who took an altogether different approach to observing the Lord's Day. For them, there was no TV, no work, and intriguingly, no cooking. The wife, and of course it was always the wife, would have to get the food for Sunday cooked and prepared by midnight on Saturday so that it could just be heated through and served on Sunday lunchtime. But the reality for most Christians I've encountered is that although in theory we like the idea of there being a day of rest, Sunday isn't it. Because for most of us, Sunday is the day 
when we're all on all the rotors at church. The shift of the Lord's Day from the Jewish Sabbath, which of course is celebrated on a Saturday, to the Christian Sunday occurred fairly early in the Christian tradition, uh, at a point when many early Christians were also Jewish. And these early Jewish Christ followers would observe the Saturday Sabbath, and then they would gather for their Christian worship on a Sunday, on the first day of the week. And this set the practice for the day of Christian worship being a Sunday. And as Christianity shifted from being a Jewish sect to a Gentile religion, so the theology of Sabbath shifted to a Sunday as well, with Sunday becoming enshrined as the day of rest and the day of Christian worship. And despite various Christendom attempts to enshrine the idea of a Christian Sunday Sabbath in various laws of different countries, we are in reality a long way from the religious and cultural context that lies behind our reading today from Luke's Gospel about the disputes Jesus had with the Pharisees over the keeping and breaking of the Sabbath. And there's something we need to be especially careful of here as we read this text and those like it. All too easily we can find ourselves using it to reinforce anti-Semitic tropes and in the week where we have just marked Holocaust Memorial Day, the importance of avoiding such easy othering is especially visible. You see, the point of this passage is not that the Sabbath is bad. And neither is it that the Jewish leaders are stiff and legalistic in their opposition to Jesus. It's very easy and very tempting to read these stories of dispute over Sabbath keeping as presenting the legalistic Pharisees on one side and the libertarian Jesus on the other. And then to translate onto that dichotomy a narrative of legalistic Judaism on one side versus libertarian Gentile Christianity on the other. But this is not about Gentiles versus Jews, even if that is the way Gentile Christians have often chosen to read it. This isn't an inter-religious debate. It's an intra-religious debate. This is a dialogue between Jews over the true meaning of the Jewish Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are Jewish and their transgression of Sabbath laws is not some symbolic protest about Jewish legalism to be celebrated by the Gentile heirs of Christianity. And intriguingly, neither are the Pharisees the villains here that they are often made out to be. I've said before, and I will say again, the Pharisees get an unnecessarily harsh time of it in the interpretive tradition of Christianity. In fact, I'll go a bit further than this. I think that the Pharisees are the Baptists of first century Judaism. What I mean by this is that in many ways, uh, what they are seeking to do for Judaism is what Baptists and other nonconformist and Protestant groups have sought to do for Christianity. I'll say a bit more what I mean by this. Judaism in the first century was highly dependent on the temple. Herod the Great, 
uh, had rebuilt and restored the temple. And by the time of Jesus' ministry, it was more magnificent than it had been at any point since the Babylonians had destroyed the first temple of Solomon some six centuries earlier. And whilst Judaism had already proved during the Babylonian exile and the early years of the return to the land that their faith could survive without a temple, the economic and social pull of Herod's temple in Jerusalem had led to people increasingly looking to the priests and the sacrificial system as their primary route for divine encounter. The Pharisees rebelled against this and promoted a form of Jewish piety that didn't need the priesthood and the temple to be the mediators between the general population and God. In many ways, the Pharisees were the democratizers of religion, focusing instead on personal piety and devotion, and on the importance of taking personal responsibility for your soul's state before God. You don't need the priest between you and God. If you practice your religion right, you have access to God yourself. And the echoes of this democratizing desire in the Protestant reformations break with the priestly systems of the medieval Roman Catholicism are striking. But just as Baptists have often ended up idolizing the Bible, even if they claimed that the Bible freed them from the idolatry of Rome. So the Pharisees' attempts to offer a means and mode of devotional practice that could be followed by anyone without needing the priests in the temple, well, that also became, in its turn, a form and means of oppression. The issue at stake here, as we all know, was the regulations surrounding the celebration of the Sabbath. What's not quite so clear on first reading is quite why this matters so much. If it's not just a pure addiction to legalism, why were the Pharisees so obsessed about keeping the Sabbath laws? And why were Jesus' disciples so set on breaking them? Well, the first thing to understand is that Sabbath keeping was, and to an extent still remains, a transgressive act. Sabbath keeping was not about compliance, it was about rebellion. Sabbath keeping was one of the things that marked Judaism as distinct from the world around it, because it was a practice that, like the idea of jubilee, to which it is so closely tied, intentionally disrupted the economic regimes of oppression that otherwise were free to dominate humans without limit. Then as now, the economic systems of the world slept for no one. And if you were a landowner, it made no sense to give your workers a day off, when instead you could have them working seven days a week. And this was precisely what landowners did across the ancient Near East. Labour was cheap, lives were cheap, and if you worked people to death by the time they were 40, it didn't really matter because you could simply employ their children in their place. The Jewish command to have a day off each week was an act of economic resistance, and it spoke of God's gracious intrusion into life disrupting the systems of servitude that were otherwise free to oppress without constraint. 
like the Victorian labor laws or the rise of the trades union movement. Sabbath was supposed to be a means of grace to those who were poor. Certainly it was not meant to be a means of obligation on those who were already otherwise oppressed. It guaranteed people a window of time so that they could rest on the seventh day because God rested on the seventh day. And so the Pharisees' defence of it wasn't some attempt to impose ridiculous regulations on people for the sake of it. It was a desire to protect something that made God's grace real in the world and brought freedom to those facing financial enslavement. It was an echo of Exodus. In which case, now you might well ask, why was Jesus so set on disrupting it? Well, here's the thing. Even the best intentions disrupt, sorry, even the best intentioned disruptions of the rhythms of oppression can themselves function as tools of oppression if they become in the end, the end rather than the means. I'll say that again, even the best intentioned disruptions of the rhythms of oppression can themselves function as tools of oppression if they become the end rather than the means. But the Sabbath was good and the Pharisees' defence of it was good. But when the very thing that was supposed to defend the poor and the vulnerable became instead a reason to deny feeding the hungry or healing the sick, then it had gone very wrong. So Jesus isn't opposed to the Sabbath. Rather, he wants to take it back to its original God-given intent. Jesus wasn't challenging the Sabbath intrinsically. Rather, he was highlighting the oppressive function that it had acquired. So Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, not the other way round. And in the person of Jesus, we see God drawing near and we realise that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, bringing healing and wholeness to any who need it. And any system which opposes that, however well-intentioned it may be, needs to be challenged. The inbreaking kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, should always be about the renewal of life, the giving of life to those in need. And meeting hunger and dispensing healing are essential characteristics of God's presence. So any approach to Sabbath keeping, which takes it away from its emancipatory origins, prohibiting the life-giving good news of the kingdom to those who are vulnerable, is no longer fulfilling its original intent. That's why Jesus challenges the rules around Sabbath. So where does this leave us? We may not have a particular issue around Sundays, but I do wonder what traditions we may have that whilst perfectly good in their intent and origin can become a danger can become an end in themselves rather than a means of grace. Well, my hope is that the suspension, the enforced suspension 
of all of our activities during this last year of lockdown can provide us with an opportunity to reflect on our interrupted traditions. And an opportunity for us to plan for a future where we don't just carry on doing things simply because we've always done them that way. So much of what had seemed essential and unchallengeable has now had to stop. And I hope that as we plan for the reopening of our society, our lives and our church over the coming months, we won't simply seek to regain the familiar, defaulting to our preferred rituals of living, worship and service. From our congregational life, to our compassionate engagement with the needs of the world, to our commercial activity, to our cultural impact, we need to hear the challenge to live and rebuild according to the values and vision that we have discerned for ourselves. And we need to not assume that we must just restart all the things as they were when we closed them down last March. These four C words, congregation, commerce, compassion and culture, are a helpful way of us envisaging the life of our church. They're a matrix of thinking about church that's offered to us by the Hartedge community, of which Bloomsbury is a part, that originates with St Martin in the Fields down the road. And the deacons have been using them over the last few months to think about how we can build a sustainable and effective future for our church, where our congregational life, our commercial activity, our compassionate ministry and our cultural impact are strands that reinforce each other and work together to bring life and hope to being in the world in the name of Christ through our church. And so at this afternoon's church meeting, we're going to be spending some time reflecting together on our congregational life, one of these four strands, thinking about how we can embody our values as Christ's people in ways that are true to our calling. And this is where we need to do our version of rediscovering the true meaning of Sabbath. Thinking again about our traditions, reconsidering them, rediscovering their true value and perhaps stripping them of those things which have become less helpful, less embodying of the kingdom of God as it breaks into our midst. This requires courage and it necessitates risk and it calls us to an openness to change. But it is a response to the call of Jesus to rethink Sabbath and to prioritise the values of the Kingdom of Heaven. That's great. Um, just to kick off um, the discussion, um, I wondered what people's previous experiences of teaching about the Sabbath um, have been. Has anyone had and how maybe that is different to what Simon's just brought to us. The first thing I've got noted down on the, that I made as notes during the sermon, um, I was brought up with that traditional reading of this passage in particular, 
um, with that concept of the Pharisees bad, um, it being the start or it's being used to set up the start of the conflict between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees that led to Easter. Um, I'm glad to have had it challenged because actually there is obviously good reason for what some of the Pharisees were trying to do, even if that then diverted into something less helpful. That makes sense. Um, that's also my experience as well, this very kind of Jesus good guy, Pharisees bad guys, um, good versus evil dichotomy, which I think as human beings, we like to do, we like to know who the goodies are and who the baddies are in any story, but actually it's actually, Jesus is showing us it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than that. Um, anyone else have any other thoughts they'd like to share? Yeah, Although it's, it's always been um, the day of rest. I, I don't think I was ever brought up expecting that Sunday would actually be restful. Sunday was a day of rest from what we did the rest of the week, uh, but it was a day that we all went to church and we all did things at church and it was just a day that was resting from from what we were doing the rest of the time I was there was never anything restful on a Sunday we always did lunch or counted the offering or mum was in the office doing a lot of work there like um so yeah it's always been called a day of rest but it, it never in my mind was a day that we weren't to be doing things and it I think I was brought up with the ritual of that day of the week was about going to church and about um, having that focus. And actually I find that helpful. It doesn't mean that I don't pop to the shops if we need something. And um, I, yeah, I, I think enough of the, the population is not Christian and needs to be able to access shops and other services that actually it would be a really weird thing to, to impose a complete lockdown uh on on the things that that people need on a sunday um yeah. i think for me um it's kind of taken a lifetime of church kind of involvement to sort of work through a lot of the stuff that i you know so i started with um in a sense sunday very often being a really lovely day actually you know what i mean i I think it can could be a retreat from the kind of I don't know the pressures and I don't like a lack of stability or whatever that you know I could belong to something different and uh, and then I think there's a reflect you know sense in which that inner rest as well is really significant um, but then then again I think it's always as you say you know the whole thing of then using it as a sort of way of othering you know like you know which is a very human um trait and i think it's present all the time in a way and we've got to be really guard against it so that for me it's a kind of a mixture of, of, of things i think that i i feel from it um yeah so it's, it's a very it's very complex and i think the sabbath now for me is an extraordinary concept and i think uh, you know it jumps out what simon said about it being transgressive and rebellious you know i think so that so for me that's amazing you know absolutely and it's a wonderful um, opportunity, I think. Uh, yeah. I've just seen Dermot's comment about the swings in the park were chained up on a Sunday. <laughs> um, no TV and no riding our bikes. And I actually recall 
about eight years ago, I went on and did a cycling touring holiday in the Western Isles of Scotland. And the sheer shock of having to realise that actually the pubs weren't going to be open for a Sunday lunch. The, um, the shops definitely weren't open. And therefore, I really actually had to plan ahead when I was camping to make sure I'd got enough food to be able to cook and eat on the Sunday. <laughs> and it did just take that different mindset. And it took a couple of weeks of the trip to actually click across to it. But also... Mm the signs and it was still the case there that the playgrounds were closed on a Sunday. Hmm. And did you find there was any benefit to that way of thinking or was it just a different way of thinking? It was a very different way of thinking. I like Roseanne, I've grown up in a, in a situation where Sunday mornings were actually quite busy um serving within the church be that cooking lunches at bloomsbury playing in the music groups at various churches or otherwise um so sunday hasn't been that day of rest it's been that day of a different set of activities um it's it took a while mm. to realize that actually that structure up there in that area where they chose to opt out effectively as a community from the Sunday trading relaxation um, actually meant that I had to then fit into a day that was now going to be considerably more restful. Makes sense. I know personally I find rest like completely not doing something really really difficult <laughs> like what is this weird concept of not doing anything yeah. and just existing or receiving or just recharging that I think actually lockdown's done that for me of being like oh this is actually a good thing maybe possibly yeah. and yeah. maybe you know maybe the Pharisees were onto something um even if they were taking it to quite a a very strict degree they were definitely on to something there's some really interesting yeah. comments coming out of the <laughs> chat um just i'll go through some of these um so ado says it's so important to talk about some of the anti-semitism um encoded into some of the traditional readings of the bible so many of the ways we discuss the old testament for example directly inform anti-semitic beliefs and steamroll over practices interpretive traditions and diversity of a living breathing faith mm. um i think that's very um actually that's really poignant and something worth thinking about um nigel says that sabbath describes it as a day of difference which is quite interesting because i think that's paralleled with what some of us have said how um perhaps different practices of resting on the sabbath is quite different to our usual rhythm and it's a way of doing something different perhaps rather than just doing nothing or particular rules um is another comment from i'm not sure who sbb is um it is worth the thought on what alternative there will be without a period of devotion rest and reflection as christians Maybe the question is the imposition of it to regulate or make a strong tradition. Jesus, I think, was looking at the importance of it, but adding a degree of flexibility um, when practicing it. Yeah, you, you, I look at it. There are professions that we would object if they didn't work Sundays. 
um, certain key workers uh, associated with either the police, the emergency services, the medics, um, because there are things that happen where you need people to be available to respond on a Sunday. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we should expect them to work seven days a week. Giving them their days off and respecting their days mm. off, ministers having their days off on a different day of the week and respecting that that's their Sabbath day, it's their day of rest and recuperation, um, is equally important. Um, and I, I look to Simon's challenge towards the end of the sermon where mm. effectively we have completely changed what we do on a Sunday. For me, I walk the length of a corridor to come and sit here as opposed to an hour's train journey or drive into London to go to church. That's a big convenience and a big time saving, but what am I doing with that time? And when we come back together, how do I make the use of the, uh, the time of traveling valuable? Um, do we, how do we work the rest of the um, other parts of what we would normally do on a Sunday what have we now clung to and made those rules? I think um, what also strikes me um, very strongly is this idea of uh, almost like an enforced Sabbath um, that's, you know, in, imposed. But I, I, I really think that it can be a means of grace because I think the underlying, for me, the underlying, you know, realities of what the Sabbath represents are much, much wider than a, a kind of day of, Christian observance or something you know I really think we can be over focused on on that and that's why we get into this sort of problem you know of legalism because you know I think at heart what God is calling us to do is a radically different way of, of existing um, you know to be built into our lives and whether that's to do with the Sabbath um, you know in terms of uh, enshrined in, in as a, it, it's about a, an attitude that modern life doesn't allow of stepping back of reflecting, of being still. And for me, you know, that opportunity is, is, is very significant for us um, because I think, and, and I just think there's so many implications of the Sabbath. It, it's uh, also, um, there's a lot of teaching in the Old Testament about the land and the Sabbath. You know, um, it's, it's a hugely significant thing for, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really good theology going on at the moment about um, you know, the environmentally uh, issues of Sabbath, uh, of how we over, you know, use the land, we, you know, we, we, uh, we abuse nature, you know, we don't, you know, everything needs a Sabbath, it, you know, it's a principle of life, you know, it's, and, and the Jubilee. So for me, it's, it's a radical thing. And, you know, Simon said, what is it, you know, it's a, it's a transgressive act, you know, to, to actually challenge the whole way in which our society and system operates you know and, and actually this lockdown is, is a brilliant challenge I mean it's a horrible challenge but it, it's an opportunity for the modern world to stop and in a way you know in terms of environmentalism it's a fantastic opportunity because we can step back and say well what on earth will we be doing you know this crazy lifestyle that you know running around and I know, I know one's got to be really careful here about you know everyone needs to work but yeah a lot of people you know they, we, we do you know and um, some of us are fortunate that we don't need to do that but I, th I think it's an opportunity and, and it's great that, you know, we've got that this afternoon. <laughs> but also I'm just saying that for me, it's a hugely significant wider thing. So yeah, I'll, um, I'll shut up on that.
That's great. Thank you, Ian. Um, Roseanne, did you want to add anything for any final thoughts? Um, I, th I think, yeah, it's it's nice to think about the things that we can take forward, um, the, the changes that we've made and things like, uh, one, I, I chose a, a career path where actually I don't have to work at the weekends, but um, it's nice to know that if when the kids are a little bit older and I am taking on more, which is what work obviously want you to do all the time, um, that if, if we've changed how we're... Um, meeting and if we're changing what's offered as a congregation that if if some weekends I end up working actually I can engage with other parts of the church during the week and I can watch the service again later and that there are things that actually really help you to stay connected even if your your day of rest is not always on a Sunday um, and those opportunities to expand and engage with people differently um, I think are really valuable. Great, thank you. Um, I think that's really true. Um, there's some really, really interesting comments coming into the chat. I feel like it's going so fast. I'm like, I can't keep up with it that's so much. Um, uh, there's a lot of discussion about different justice implications for work and stopping and um, how that could work in practice. Um, Luke said something about stopping is a privilege. So that's quite interesting to think about how many workers and people in the world maybe don't get as much opportunity to stop working um, if you're constantly working to survive. So that's quite an interesting thought to have um, and ideas about how um, it can be um, a, a justice issue. And also about raising points about how um, mindfulness, um, we can bring in mindfulness and the concept of just existing and not doing constantly actually being able to be is so important in this modern times which I think Ian um, was discussing as well so I encourage everyone to have a read of the chat um, and to join in and share your thoughts um, so as I bring this discussion period to a close um, as time's running on and at the end of each section of prayer I invite you to uh, I will I will say uh, in your mercy and I can invite you to say hear our prayer Thank you. Let us pray. God of love, we thank you for your word that Simon has just brought to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. You came to challenge injustice, to heal the sick and free the oppressed. We thank you that you have enshrined the Sabbath as a principle for us to embrace just as you rested following your work of creation. Help us, to help us, we pray, to understand afresh what the gift of the Sabbath might mean for us and for the earth itself and its implications in relation to the exploitation of so many in our world. May we embrace your Sabbath vision for the whole of creation at this time of climate crisis and global pandemic. In your mercy, Hear our prayer. God of hope, our world where so many nations are overwhelmed by the pandemic, um, we, we, we just cry to you, Lord, in, as we see it, as we see it in our own nation, um, in our own lives. Um, 
but we also thank you for the progress that we see in the development and rollout of vaccines and that the hope that this brings uh, eventually that the pandemic can be brought under control. However, we do acknowledge uh, the reality of global inequality um, in the benefits of the vaccine um, and that in many countries um, there is no vaccine available or it is rationed to those who can afford it. So we pray for a fair distribution of vaccines and for wise leadership, particularly in the UK and EU um, as uh, tensions have arisen um, over the last week. We pray for all those who have so selflessly given themselves in hospitals and care homes and worked tirelessly and under pressure. We thank you for their example of steadfastness and, and, and courage. We pray for all those who have been hospitalized with the virus. We pray for their healing and for those in recovery that you may bring them hope for restoration to full health. We pray for all who mourn the loss of loved ones, the virus, that they may be comforted. And we remember before you those who have lost jobs, for children and families struggling with the effects of lockdown on their education. For those um, who are students and young people in higher education and training. We pray for all those in authority that you would grant them wisdom and humility that the world would be coming together across political and national and international divides uh, to solve uh, this crisis. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, we pray for President Biden and his new administration as they embark on their legislative program and on tackling the pandemic we thank you for so many promising interventions and policies, um, such as turning the US, returning the US back to the Paris Accord on Climate Action, the suspension of oil pipelines in environmentally sensitive areas, and the restoration of environmental controls, and for issues um, for bringing justice. Uh, to people's lives. And we pray above all for healing and reconnection, uh, re reconciliation in the US after years of polarization and racial and uh, hatred and intolerance. We pray for Uganda following the months, this month's elections. We pray for peace and justice following the violence and widespread allegations of electoral fraud that have uh, contributed to the re-election of President Museveni. We pray for the opposition leader, Bobby Wine, held under house arrest, and also for those seeking justice for the persecu persecuted LBTQ community. We pray for Russia as protests follow the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. And we pray for those nations still convulsed by war and civil conflict, for Ethiopia, for the Yemen, for Afghanistan, for the Sahel in North Africa, for Venezuela, for S Somalia, for Syria and the Lebanon. 
In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of love, we pray for our church in this time of challenge, but also of opportunity. We thank you for all who continue to serve so faithfully in leadership and also in the less public roles. And we pray that you would sustain them through these challenges brought about by lockdown. We pray for the church business meeting today that you would help us as we think and pray together about the future of the church. As Simon has encouraged us to do, may we honestly and courageously open ourselves to examining our traditions and expectations and be prepared to let go of those things that we are afraid to lose, but which no longer serve our values and calling as a church. We thank you for the continued program that the church has been able to run, the regular Sunday services, the provoking questions, Bible study, and many other things, Lord. We thank you for the very real blessings that you have brought through Bloomsbury's continued um, ministry and, and the way in which digital technology has been so effectively used. But Lord, we're also aware that that very thing can bring um, isolation to others who do not have access to the internet or, or the skills to maybe use as social media. In your mercy, hear our prayer. And God of healing, we pray for all those who are part of our fellowship, especially for Jackie, as she grieves Bill's passing and Bill's wide circle of friends and family. For Isabel who asks for prayer, as she's very distressed at the moment. For Dave and Sandy, Sally and Jenny, and Michael's circle of friends. For Peter H, his mother, who is still very frail. We pray for Peter as he is caring for her around the clock. For Brian, Faith and Richard. And their concerns and uncertainties around health and their longer term plans for the future. For Chris G, whose health is fluctuating. And for all those who are, special, uh, who are especially isolated in this time of pandemic. And all those whose underlying health conditions make them more vulnerable to contra uh, contracting the virus. A few moments of silence as we remember those known to us personally who we wish to bring before God. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day, this Sabbath day. Thank you for your love and care for us and for creation. In your intention that we find rest. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're now going to close the service with a blessing. And may the blessing of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen. <laughs>